You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, believe it or not, it was this weekend last year when we began the Genesis series. It has been exactly a year that we've been in this series, and some of you are going, I know, it's been a year. But I have so enjoyed this series, and it's been so rich for me personally. And if you've been here through the course of the whole series, you've heard 42 sermons on this book. This is the 43rd and the final one today. And as I was preparing for this this final passage that we're gonna wrestle with and learn from together, I was reminded of this reality of defining moments. Every generation has a series of defining moments where there are events or things that happen where you can mentally go back to what you were doing, where you were, what was happening in your life when that event happened. And it was the 18th anniversary of one of these events last week. Do you remember this? 9-11? I can tell you where I was, what I was doing, what was going on in my life when this happened because it was a defining moment for our country. In fact, in the last 20 years, there have been a a number of defining moments. And I haven't gone back and quantified this by decade and by generation, but it seems like there's been a disproportionate number of things, in my humble estimation, that have been defining moments for us as as a country. Um, How about the Great Recession? A a number of us are never going to forget that. And that wasn't necessarily a event in time, but it was a series of years that that were very difficult for us. Or how about this? This was very difficult too. The Ducks losing (laughs) the national championship when they finally got there. And we're not even going to talk about the Ohio State national championship. It wasn't even close. But this was a heartbreaker. And I did cry for days and weeks, you know, when this this happened. And I don't know how that made that into the slide. Well, I put it there. That's how I made it. But some other defining moments. Desert Storm or Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And then Operation Iraqi Freedom, and there are a number of you who are here who served in those two conflicts. And one of my former middle school students served in um, Iraqi Freedom, and this picture, this image that you see on the screens behind me, he was actually right in the middle of that. And for the benefit of our online community who will be podcasting or listening to this, it's a picture, as you can see on the screens behind me, of this enormous sandstorm as these troops are beginning to head towards it. And I don't know if you remember this news story. I don't. I remember Operation Iraqi Freedom, but I don't quite remember this. But this was um, an email that I saved from many, many years ago talking about what happened on this day shortly after our troops um, started the campaign and went into Iraq. Um, This happened. That there was a sandstorm early in the war and then a drenching rain that followed it the next day. Some even considered them the worst in 100 years. And as a result, our troops were bogged down and could not move effectively. The media was already beginning to wonder if the troops were in a quagmire. And there were dire predictions of gloom and doom that then started to dominate the news. And, you know, when you hear words like quagmire and stuck, we all probably have a frame of reference for that. You ever been driving something and, you know, gotten stuck? Or to take this a step further, you ever been in a relational storm? 
Ever felt relationally stuck? Ever felt yourself in this relational quagmire, if you wanted to call it that? This, this conflicted relationship or this painful past that continues to come back, continues to try to pull you back into it? And those, in a way, are defining moments too. And what we're gonna see in this passage as we come to the end of the book of Genesis feels like, looks like, to me, a relational quagmire. It feels like the brothers and Joseph are stuck once again in this painful past that they share together. And we're actually covering chapters 49 and 50 in this final message, and we just don't have time to read through all 49, so I'll give you a bird's eye view. For those of you who have read this, know this, but in chapter 49, as we leave this idea, this value of blessing that Gary Brashears helped us see in the earlier chapters last week, this, this idea though, this reality blessing continues to carry forward where Jacob now will bless all the brothers. And in this blessing that he gives them, it's actually prophetic, it's predictive. And it not only predicts what's gonna happen in their lives, but in the lives of all their descendants, of the tribes of Israel that would follow them in future generations. And some of these predictions are, are pretty dire, they're kind of dark, but overlaying all of them is this idea of blessing. Well, Jacob gives that, and then he finally dies, 147 years old, and then it's about his burial, where the Egyptian dignitaries and the whole family go back to the promised land, go back to Canaan, where they bury him, and then they come back, and now we come to the brothers. Now we're going to see once again this conflicted, painful, still relationship between Joseph and his brothers, and that's what's on the screens behind me now. So if you have a Bible, please open, take out your tablet or your phone, and get to Genesis 50. I will read it as I always do, and this is what I want you to watch for. There is some profoundly significant relational, interpersonal wisdom for us in this exchange between Joseph and his brothers, particularly in what Joseph says and does and does not do. But I would submit to you there is an even greater reality swimming around in what we're about to see, and it's this. This, once again, is not only gonna tell us something about ourselves, it's gonna tell us about God, his character, what he's like, how he works, what he is all about. So watch for these things as we read this together. So let me read this to you. Genesis 50, 15 through 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but... God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them. 
and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family and he lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Mekur, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and he will take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they had embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So now let's begin to work our way back through this passage. And honestly, this feels like a movie we've already seen. It feels like a rerun. I mean, haven't we already been in this place? Hasn't Joseph already forgiven them and reconciled to them? Evidently, in the brothers' minds, not so much. In fact, there seems to be this thing playing out here where, okay, dad's out of the way, now Joseph's gonna make us pay. And they assume he still holds a grudge against them. And we're not sure why, but there are some things that may be helpful in trying to have a frame of reference for this. In all fairness, their family history is kind of about this. Remember, Jacob originally left the promised land because he was running for his life. His brother Esau said, I am going to kill you because Jacob had stolen the birthright and stolen the blessing that were rightfully Esau's. And many scholars believe that the only restraining influence that kept Esau from coming after Jacob were his mom and dad. Remember, it was Isaac and Rebekah who told Joseph, yeah, excuse me, Jacob, you need to go and you need to go now. And then the brothers surely had to remember in Genesis 32, And 33, when they first met Uncle Esau for the first time, when Jacob came back to him after all these years of running for his life, not knowing how Esau was gonna treat him, remember, Jacob very shrewdly put his family and all his livestock and everything in these groupings ahead of him. Jacob was in the very back. And imagine how the brothers, his sons felt, not knowing what was gonna happen when they met Uncle Esau, was he gonna kill all of them? Because the last time he had parted ways with dad, he had sworn he was gonna kill dad. So maybe this is playing through their minds. They certainly had heard those stories from their dad. But all that to say, these brothers have a history of what they do when they're under duress and when their lives are on the line. What do they consistently do? They lie. And we see this over and over again. Many scholars believe, and I think they're right, who am I, but I think they're right, that Jacob never left these instructions with the brothers because of how this is written. There are some clues here that suggest this. Number one, did you notice the brothers don't even go directly to Joseph themselves. They send an emissary. They send a representative. Hmm, that's a little smelly. That's a little stinky. What's going on with that? Secondly, what's the first thing they say? Your father. They are playing to Joseph's sense of responsibility as a son. Isn't he all their father? Yeah. But again, many scholars believe, and I think they're right, they're trying to manipulate Joseph. Hey, you need to be a good son. And by the way, this is what dad said. 
Everything seems to point to that Jacob never said this, that this is a lie. Now, in fairness to the brothers, they're afraid. They're afraid for their lives. Joseph is in a place still of absolute power over them. Can he really be trusted? Did he really forgive them? Did he really mean it when he said he wanted to be reconciled to them? They're not so sure. And interestingly, through the book of Genesis, as we see the brokenness of sin playing itself out in relationships, how often do we see people lying when they are afraid? Think Abraham, when he leaves the promised land due to the famine and goes down to Egypt, who does he say Sarah is? His sister? And then many years later, Isaac, when he's under duress, what does he say about his wife, Rebecca? Who is she? His sister, like father, like son. And then we think about Laban, who was the master liar, but if anyone was surpassed by Laban, it was Jacob, whose name can literally mean deceiver or to put it in another way, liar. And a common denominator that seems to run through all those situations is they lied because they were afraid. Now let's take this for a test drive for a moment. How often do you or I lie when we're afraid? Again, going back to our story, is this rational? Is this reasonable that they would assume Joseph has a grudge against them and that he wants to take revenge on them? No, it's not rational, it's not reasonable. We've already seen this reconciliation forgiveness process that they go through in these earlier chapters of Genesis. And this is why fear leads us to irrational places and irrational decisions. We do not make good decisions when we are afraid and the brothers aren't making good decisions here either. And it actually goes from bad to worse because now they say, we are your slaves. And the irony of this is, do you remember Genesis 37? When Joseph was a kid and he began to have these dreams and he had this dream that someday his entire family would be bowing down to him. Here once again it's playing out. It's already happened. When they first came to him, desperate from the famine, not knowing he was their brother, but recognizing he's the prime minister of Egypt and that's what you do. You fall down before that type of absolute authority. Well, this is the second time now they're bowing down to their brother. And he could have made him his slaves when they didn't know who he was, when they came to him the first time. In fact, this demonstrates the irrationality of what's going on here. Joseph has got to be one of the shrewdest, wisest, most intentional people in all of the Old Testament. Have you seen his business plan for Pharaoh? Have you seen how he wisely not only saves, and it's alluded to here, the nation and his own family, but literally the entire known world? And please understand, this is not a fairy tale, this is not a fable, this is history. This really did happen. And Joseph was the one who saved the day because of his shrewd, wise, intentional planning. If he wanted to make them his slaves, wouldn't he have done that when they didn't know who he was? He already had his chance and now he's gonna make them, it makes no sense and that's the point. 
We don't make good decisions, especially relational ones, when we are afraid. And that is why, one of the reasons why, the most repeated command in Scripture is, do not fear. 366 times, one for every day of the year and an extra one if you forget. (laughs) Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And that's literally what Joseph says to them. Don't be afraid. In fact, he says it twice. And then he makes this profound statement that we'll come back and do business with here in just a minute. But he says, am I in the place of God? And for those of you who have been with us through this series or who have read your Bibles, probably remember back to we've heard this before. In Genesis chapter 30, when Leah says to Jacob, You need to give me children because she hasn't had children yet. How does Jacob respond? Am I in the place of God? Honey, doing my best here, but that's not my wheelhouse. I I don't have that kind of power. And Joseph repeats it again, but he's not just saying, I don't have the power of God. He's also saying, I am not in the place of God. And again, we'll come back to that. But then he points out that our painful past how you betrayed me, how you wronged me, how you hurt me. God has weaved all that together to accomplish good because now lives are being saved. The lives of the family, the lives of the nation, the lives of the entire known world at the time, but an even deeper saving that once again we'll come back to in just a minute. So he reassures them and he promises them, I will be kind to you. I don't hold a grudge. I do forgive you. Which brings us to this reality. Joseph not only refuses to wield the power of God, he refuses to sit in the place of God because he's not qualified to do either one. And neither are you and neither am I. And yet how often do we choose to sit in God's chair, so to speak, and to judge others. Now, some of us are this way by personality bent. I am one of those. One of the strengths of my personality is I can make judgments and can make quick judgments. It helps me as a leader. I don't spend a lot of time spin cycling about stuff. Yes, there's due diligence and process and getting good information, but I'm pretty decisive and it serves me well most of the time. But there are times it is a profound weakness in my life because I make judgments that quite frankly are wrong. And I have to be real careful about that and have to season that and restrain that and hopefully have that be guided by the Holy Spirit. But the irony is we live in a culture that is profoundly judgmental. And we are told that we should be the same. And it's really ironic because by way of example, we live in a culture that preaches and teaches and advocates for tolerance. And there's a lot of good things about tolerance. But there are some broken things too. And if you happen to not agree with however tolerance is being defined, and it does have a lot of definitions and is elastic in our culture, but if you don't agree, it's very interesting how intolerant tolerance all of a sudden becomes. 
But isn't God the only one with the knowledge and the truth and the perspective and the goodness to fairly judge and yes, when necessary, condemn? That that is not our place. It's his. And in fact, just so we're on the same page, as you read God's word, as you read about who this God is and as he reveals himself to you, you are gonna quickly come to the conclusion that judgment by God is not a first resort, as he is often characterized. Judgment by God is always a last resort. God's grace, his mercy always precedes his judgment and ultimately his condemnation, which really brings us to the point of we're using some different words here that we need to define. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, and maybe we say it ourselves, don't judge me. I think what we're really saying is don't condemn me because we're actually called to judge. In Matthew 7, which oftentimes gets misquoted because it's half the story, people will say, well see, Jesus said don't judge, least you be judged. Yes, he did say that, but if you read further on in the passage when talking about the necessity of evaluating prophets and are they really speaking the truth or are they not, and you'll know it by how they live their lives and by what motivates them, he's very much telling us to judge. And as you go to other scriptures, what becomes very apparent is we are supposed to judge, but not according to our standards, according to God's. And that doesn't mean condemn. They're very different. We are to live wisely. We are to judge wisely. And again, the irony is you make judgments all the time and you're not condemning. You're simply evaluating and trying to do what you think is best. That's what we mean by judgment. We should judge wisely. We shouldn't condemn. That's that's God's place. And ultimately, we judge and evaluate our lives by the word of God. That That is the bottom line because that is how God wants to provide for us and protect us and bless us. Do you believe that? Because there's another layer of judgment going on here. Another way Joseph refuses to sit in God's chair, and here it is, he refuses to define good and evil for himself. He refuses to be his own moral agent, his own moral authority. Because we have a historic problem that we're all up against, and it goes all the way back to the very beginning of this book that we started in over a year ago. It goes all the way back to the start and dawn of human history, and that is Adam and Eve chose to listen to the evil one's voice that basically suggested God is holding out on you. God is not truly good, so therefore you need to decide what is good for yourself. And isn't it interesting that that's when sin and brokenness entered this world? In fact, that's where we're gonna go back to when we start our sexuality series next week. You see, we, many of us have bought into the lie that we can sit in God's chair, divorce ourselves, separate ourselves from God's word, and then decide what's right and wrong for us. And that's one of the many reasons why we wanna steer into this sexuality series is no one wants to bless every part of our lives, including our sexuality, more than God does. He wants to protect for us and provide for us and bless us ultimately because his way is better than ours. 
but sometimes we don't believe that. And it's reflected in the choices we make because we're the ones deciding what's best for us rather than God. So whose chair are you sitting in this morning? When it comes to the relationships in your life, when it comes to the choices before you, when it comes to your priorities, and on down the list we could go, Joseph refuses to sit in that chair because he believes that God is the ultimate judge and really he believes that God is ultimately good and the proof of that is how God is overcoming evil for good. Joseph basically says to his brothers, and it's a profoundly important thing that tells us the character of God, what you intended for evil, God has intended and is using for good. And you've heard me say this before because I absolutely believe it. I think the proving ground, I think the testing ground for living out your faith and mine and our willingness to trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ starts with our families. If you can live out your relationship with the Lord in your family, you can do it anywhere. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Because your family can and should be the place of greatest blessing. And for so many of us, our family is the source of the greatest pain and brokenness that we've experienced in our lives. And I'd like you to hear a story about that from, from one, of our, one of our leaders. Sean Rowley is one of our elders, for those of you who don't know him. He's a part of our elder team. He's a part of the preaching team. His fingerprints are on every sermon you hear with the other five members of our preaching team every Sunday. And Sean is one of our preachers, but you haven't heard from him for a while. And we'd like him to not only speak to that, but to this reality that we're talking about here this morning. Yeah, Grace, uh, good morning. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just some of the things the Lord's been doing in my heart and in my life um, these past months. Um, but to do that, I need to give you a little bit of, of history. My mom died in 2007, and like anybody who's lost somebody close to them, of course that was a painful and, and difficult time. But I think for me it was even more painful and more difficult because there was a lot of um, mystery, there's a lot of question marks that I still have surrounding her death. She didn't die a natural death of natural causes and um, I still have a lot of questions about that. And so because of that, there was just added layers of pain there, um, added, added hurts there. And I, I think that I tried to deal with it in the best way that I thought or that I knew how. And, and so what I did was I, I shoved all of my pain and all of my questions and all of my confusion into a little box. And I shoved them in a closet and I just tried to kind of forget about them. Um, I've learned to do that because there was also a lot of pain and trauma from, from my growing up years. Uh, I, I grew up um, in a, a home that was... Um, kind of a blended home. My parents divorced when I was five or six. Both of my parents were drug addicts and alcoholics. My stepfather, the man who raised me, uh, was abusive. And so I had a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, um, and a lot of hurt um, from my childhood. And, and that was the way I learned to deal with it. Shove it in a box, put it in the closet, and just, just try to forget about it. And so every year since 2007, when my mom died, every year in the springtime around her death, um, I began to experience um, just feelings of depression and sadness and confusion. Um, it just brought up a lot of things for me. But every year I would just kind of press on. Spring would turn to summer, the sun would come out, things would get warm, life would move on. And, 
And I would just kind of move on from there then and try to forget about it again until it came back the following year. And this year, I don't know what was different about this year, Grace, but this year, um, something was different. Um, the levels of depression that I experienced this year were, they were like something I'd never experienced before. I, I honestly didn't even know somebody could feel the, the, some of the ways that I was feeling. Some of you know what that's like. And I honestly just didn't want to deal with it. I was scared. I knew it was going to be painful, but I was tired of hurting, and I just really didn't know what to do. And my wife, one, one evening we were talking through tears, she just said, Sean, it's time to deal with this. It's time to, 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 to put this to bed and get, get on with our lives. And so um, she was right. So I found a counselor. I've been in counseling for the last several months. I'm making great strides there. Um, I'm making great strides. I've stayed in the word consistently. I've stayed in prayer. Um, some close, trusted brothers and sisters in Christ have stayed around me. They've been a support to me. But honestly, Grace, serving has been difficult. Like Jay said, I've still been on the preaching team meeting. I'm still on the elder team. Um, but it's been difficult for me. And some of you have wondered, I've had a few people ask me, Sean, why, why haven't you preached or when are you going to preach next? I even had one of um, my older sisters in Christ a couple weeks ago. Um, she said, man, I'm so glad to see you. She said, I went on the website and looked to see if you were even still an elder here. I didn't know, I hadn't seen you in a while. Um, and honestly, Grace, that's just because even though I've, I've wanted to serve, I've wanted to, to be here, I just haven't been able to. I just haven't been able to. And so what I want you to hear this morning is, is this, that, that we serve a strong God, just like we sung about earlier. And God is a God who takes um, the, the things in our lives, all of the good stuff, all of the blessings, all of the benefits, all of the wonderful things, and somehow miraculously, he also takes all of the pain and struggle and trials and difficulties and um, evil in our world and he also uses that to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so my friends, I just want you to hear that this morning. If that's the season, if that's the spot you're in, um, God loves you, he cares about you, he wants what's good for you, and he wants to bring you to a place of hope and healing and restoration. And it's something that I personally am walking through and experiencing right now. Um, so my encouragement to you is if that's where you're at, don't wait, man, get help now. Maybe it's just coming to talk to somebody here. Maybe it's diving deeper into community. Maybe it's like me seeking professional help for your counselor. Maybe you need some medicine. I don't know what it is that you need, but God works through all kinds of things in all kinds of circumstances. Um, so get help. I love you, Grace. I told Jay I wouldn't preach, um, but I- Come on. Yeah, just, <laughs> I love you. I love you, Grace. Thank you. That is not easy to do, to share so openly about your life. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a high value to us as a leadership, and if you're newer to our church, a high value to our church to be authentic, to be real. It's okay and good to be in process. And that's a very vivid example of how God is overcome, overcoming evil with good, but man, it is, it is not easy. Sometimes it's profoundly difficult.
But it's precisely in this season when it is difficult that we anchor ourselves once again to the reality, even if it doesn't seem like it, even if it doesn't feel like it, that God is the God who keeps his promises. And that's what we see Joseph doing here. That's what Sean just shared with us from his own life, is that this is a God who does exactly what he says he will do. And if there's anything you take away from this Genesis series, let it be this, the consistent character and example that we've seen of this God throughout this amazing book is that he's the God who keeps his promises. He will keep his promises to me and to you, whether it feels like it or not, even when it seems like he's not. Because this is a God whose main priority, his agenda, his goal is what Joseph talks about here, the saving of many lives. The saving of the lives of 70 people in Jacob's family, the saving of the Egyptian nation, the saving of the known world at the time, but there is a deeper salvation that this is alluding to and pointing to and relating to. And it is a salvation that we've seen referenced throughout the book of Genesis. I know we did not have a chance to look at this in chapter 49, but now we're gonna jump back to the blessing that Joseph gives to each of the brothers and focus in on what he says to Judah. It's so important that we see this and recognize it. This is what he says to Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Lots of lion references here, right? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And now it seems like we're talking about more than just Judah, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is not Judah. This is someone else who's coming. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, all these symbols of royalty. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. For those of you, once again, who know your Bibles or who want to jump to the very end in the last book of the Bible, all this lion imagery points to the one who would be known as the Lion of Judah, who Revelation 5, 5 in the last book of the Bible declares to be Jesus. My friends, this is why this is my story. And this is your story. Because this story points and looks to the greater Joseph who will lead his people out of the captivity of sin and brokenness, who will free them and redeem them through circumstances that are so profoundly evil and broken and heartbreaking that no one would ever consider that God would work this way. But Jesus Christ will die a death by a cross, one of the most shameful, excruciating, devaluing, horrible ways that anyone could die, but it won't be a death just on his own. He will take all of our brokenness, all of our sin upon himself on that cross 
and he will die and then he will rise again to new life. And for every single one of us who chooses to put our trust and hope in him, by inviting him into our lives, we'll experience the greater salvation that's being talked about here. Because this is the God who keeps his promises. And he does it in ways sometimes that absolutely boggles our mind because somehow he's able to bring good out of the worst possible evil and out of the most difficult circumstances. Do you remember the story that we started our time with here this morning? The story of Operation Iraqi Freedom, the Marine Division that had been bogged down and caught in this quagmire of a sandstorm and a rainstorm that followed it. You may not know the rest of the story, but now you will. And this is what happened. What the news media during that time didn't report was that after the weather had cleared, the marine group that was mired in the very worst possible part of the storm looked out at the plane that they were just about to cross. And as the storm had passed, what did they see? Hundreds if not thousands of anti-tyke and anti-personnel mines that had been uncovered by the wind and then washed off and exposed by the rain. If they had proceeded as planned, many lives would have been lost. As it was, they simply drove around them and let the demolition teams destroy them in their wake. The saving of many lives through what looked like to everyone an absolute disaster. The cross is the ultimate example of God taking the most profound evil and using it for good. Your good and mine through the saving of many lives. So let's worship this God who loves us so much. Worship team, will you come? And let's worship together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who will not share us with brokenness. You will not leave us broken. You are the God who rescues us from that, who redeems us, who frees us by dying on a cross in our place to take all of our brokenness and sinfulness and shamefulness and guilt upon yourself and then rising to new life and giving us life now and giving us the hope of life in the future, we thank you that it is because of your unchanging, unfailing love that we can anchor ourselves to this reality that you are the God who saves our lives by using what is evil for good. Would we believe that? Would we live that? In Jesus' name, amen. What we just sang is true. And we pursue this God in community. And that's why we try to give you so many ways to find your way into it. One of those ways, if you're newer here to Grace or even if you're a first-time guest here this morning, is out the doors in the back and down the hallway to what we call essentials. We'd love to meet you. We'd like to talk with you about how we can get you engaged in community here. But most of all, we'd just like to spend some time with you. If you can spare 15 minutes or so, we'd love to see you at that. We have prayer teams off to the side. We would love to pray with you about anything that we can because this pursuit of God and this walking and living with God is something that we do in community. And I'd like to give you the foundation, or at least one of them, with 
where this song we just sang comes from. This is right in scripture, and it seems a fitting way for us to end our time of corporate worship here together. It says this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. So let me pray his blessing over you. Lord, thank you for each person who is here, and I thank you for those who are gonna be listening in our online community that God, all of us will choose to follow you, to trust you, and to believe you. Thank you, Lord, that all the promises that you have made are fulfilled in you, Jesus. Thank you that your heart is for many lives to be saved, including ours. So, Lord, would we now live out that identity in who we are in you? Would we choose to trust you and believe you, to not get in your chair and judge and condemn others, to not um, be our own moral authority, but, Lord, to anchor ourselves to your word and then to trust you for the blessing that you promise us. So would we go now and live these truths out in the name of Jesus Christ. And once again, God's people said, amen. amen. So let's go live for him. Hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.